0: Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and where the Catholics are at this week. Every episode, you get a new pair of feminists to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds. And today, you've got me, Shayna Roth, a senior producer for Slate.
1: And me, Molly Olmsted, a staff writer for Slate.
0: This week, we're talking about the intersection between Roe and abortion rights and the Catholic Church. I personally am Jewish, but I converted about eight years ago before I got married, though not just because I was getting married. I grew up Catholic, went to Catholic schools all through high school and then to a private college. But I think from a fairly young age, I want to say middle school-ish, I kind of knew I wasn't going to stay Catholic. I went to the private college not for the religion, but for the small size and the beautiful campus. And the reason I always knew I was going to change religions at some point was in large part to how the Catholic Church treats female autonomy, especially when it comes to things like abortion, taking birth control, and marriage. Molly, I wanted to talk to you about the Catholic Church and how it treats women's rights. When I saw your piece in Slate, is the Catholic Church under attack? It's a fascinating piece about how the church is constantly claiming to be under attack and how much they actually are. especially in the wake of Roe being overturned. And before we dig into the piece itself, Molly, why did you write it?
1: For a while, I've been interested in how the religious right sort of creates these counter narratives to help them win the culture wars. It's a kind of remarkable thing to watch them do this because we are in this moment where it feels like the religious right just keeps winning every single fight over and over. And yet they are somehow able to still make themselves out as if they are victims in all of this, as if they are sort of the underdogs. Um, And it's a very powerful tool. I was thinking about how when Trump did that Bible photo op, when they had to clear out all those protesters at Lafayette Square, and he sort of walked out with the Bible, and it was this big moment. and people were really sort of shocked by the optics of it. It seemed so sort of callous um, and a little absurd. But in that moment, you know, it was so clear that he was sort of establishing himself as this Christian nationalist president. And then I read um, recently that in, I think, his one of his recent books, the White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, said Trump was fighting against the degradation of our heritage or the burning of churches. Is sort of this moment that really I felt like showed just how powerful that kind of narrative can be. So I knew we would definitely see this with abortion because abortion is obviously a huge religion topic. And it's also the biggest, clearest, most undeniable victory that the religious right has had when we're talking about the overturning of Roe. And I knew that this would be coming. I had a heads up on it because I started paying attention to how they talked about abortion in the months sort of building up to it, especially when we had that leak of the decision beforehand. And I could see just sort of how they were creating this whole narrative. But it was still a pretty remarkable thing to see unfold. (laughs)
0: After the break, we're going to dig into Molly's piece, whether the threats to Catholicism in the wake of Roe being overturned are real or part of a propaganda campaign, and whether all the anti abortion talk by Catholics is really what the individuals believe, or if it's something the men in power are preaching. Stick with us. Welcome back to the waves. Molly, in your piece, you quote, catholicvote.org that issued a warning. This is a very intense warning. It said, quote, our sources tell us government officials are already warning Catholic dioceses when and if Roe v. Wade is overturned, churches and pro-life support centers will be targeted for vandalism, violence, or worse. End quote. What is actually going on here?
1: So... After the leaked Dobbs decision, and again, after the decision itself, there was actually a rash of vandalism incidents involving Catholic churches. There were also a few cases in which these pro-life pregnancy centers, quote unquote, because they are not actually uh, providing abortions, but they are sort of pressuring women to choose not to have an abortion. These pro-life pregnancy centers had broken windows and that some of them caught fire. So there were these suspected arsons and fire bombings. Um, but that was specifically in the pregnancy centers. So when we're talking about violence or worse, that's pretty alarmist language. Because first off, there's already this base level of this kind of activity that just sort of happens in the world. You know, it's a big big world and, you know, people, for whatever reason, will spray paint a church. So it's sort of unrelated to abortion. And also, it's at a much, much lower scale than this happens with other groups, other religious groups, especially, especially when we're talking about Judaism. And there's not really any history of actual violence here. I mean, I don't want to downplay the fear that comes from violent threats. And there definitely were violent threats. But so far, it seems to be a lot more talk than action. The right was worried about a night of rage after Dobbs. That's what they called it, a night of rage. And all that came out of that night was some graffiti and a few fires at those pregnancy centers, like I said. But there wasn't anything really be on spray paint at the churches themselves. Um, so we're talking about graffiti here. And if you have like a Catholic aunt or someone who is seeing these stories, the church graffiti is really going to stick out in their mind as something that's like shocking and visually alarming. And so she would only need a few examples of that before it looks like this huge trend, this mass terrorism that's coming from the left. But it is being intentionally boosted, particularly by conservative media that includes uh, Catholic conservative media, but also Fox News and also the actual Catholic hierarchy. I'm talking about the bishops here and. Um, and priests, and clergy, and they keep sending out, the bishops are sending out press releases about it, um, and sort of getting everyone all worked up and worried about it, and it's made to be this big post row story. Untold numbers of lives are going to be affected by this Dobbs decision, and that's on one side, and then on the other side, we have some spray paint at a handful of churches. It's, it's just not an equivalent thing.
0: When I was going through and looking at some of the statements that the different church organizations were putting out, I came across a clip from EWTN News Nightly. EWTN is the Global Catholic Television Network, and this news program says it provides news and analysis from a Catholic perspective. And they brought on Monsignor Stephen Rossetti, whose credentials include exorcist at the Archdiocese of Washington, and research associate professor at the Catholic University of America. And here is a clip from that episode. So let's talk about this
1: so-called summer of rage. Mm. Uh, talk to us more about, you know, what you think is spurring all of this.
0: Well, uh, it, this, this
1: culture of death is, certainly does not come from the Lord and there's rage, and also all these attacks against the Catholic Church, not just recently, but last year, uh, the bishops' conference said there were more than 85 desecrations of Catholic churches around the country. You know, I was a kid. People didn't do that. And so you say, what is that? Well, frankly, as an exorcist, one thing we know, that that Satan hates the Catholic Church, and Satan's in a rage, which is why we as, as Christians and Catholics Need to forgive as Jesus forgave and to love as Jesus loved. So people can come at us with anger and rage, but we need to respond with love and forgiveness.
0: While that clip was playing, they showed a few pictures. One was of a religious statue that had a head of Jesus missing. One was a church billboard with graffiti on it that said, Hands off my uterus. But whenever I see something about Catholics claiming to sort of live in fear of pro-choice people or about how they're being persecuted. I mean, my instinct, even when I was Catholic, is to scoff and go, well, that's kind of rich coming from you guys. Because when I think of violence in the abortion conversation, I think of the anti-abortion groups bombing clinics. When I think of religious hate crimes, I think of the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting. Even the FBI data that you cite in your piece has 953 incidents of anti-Jewish crimes in 2019 compared to 64 anti-Catholic. The only time I've ever been to a service that needed security was at a Jewish synagogue. So what is it about this narrative that Catholics should be living in fear that keeps persisting?
1: It is a historical narrative. Catholics are the only major Christian group that can legitimately point to historical persecution in the U.S. This is because they are so closely associated with immigrant populations. I mean, Catholicism has always been something that has been seen as less American. So they have some ability to claim that their critics are punching down at them, even when this is a bit of an antiquated notion at this point. Um, So a lot of these recent statements from Catholic leaders, they are tapping into that. When they accuse these vandals of attacking them, they accuse them explicitly of being bigots, of being prejudiced. And a lot of these statements have also compared them to compared the attacks to anti-Semitic attacks and Islamophobic attacks. To be fair, they do acknowledge that it's not as bad, but they do also say that we should be treating them the same, um, that we should treat them as equivalent kinds of hate crimes. It is definitely an out-of-date Idea. It's definitely something that is more 19th century than this century, but it is a powerful idea because it's a powerful defense against critics. It hasn't been quite as successful with some of the other Catholic issues when we talk about, you know, sex abuse or recently when we talked about the Catholic Church having these indigenous schools where we found these mass graves. This defense didn't work because the Catholic Church looked so bad in those situations that no one really could get up the energy to really care about this idea of retaliation, or at least people outside the church couldn't get up the energy for it. But ending Roe going after abortion was seen as this legitimate faith belief, this faith position. So they've been able to tie up politics and religion in this really... Tidy way that's been really useful for them.
0: And just to be clear, before our inbox gets flooded with people saying that we love violence as long as it's against Catholics, that is not what we're saying here. What we're saying, and what I in particular am saying, is that there is this sort of false equivalency that is going on here. And while it is never okay, no matter the religion, for them to be the victims of different types of crimes. In this case, it's the abortion subject that keeps raising these shouts and fears from Catholics. You had a really interesting quote from Brian Levin, director of the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University, San Bernardino, who said, what's different this time is it's more than a speed bump. This will be regarded as a tectonic shift. But the history and the subculture of women's rights just has generally not included that deep well of violent, aggressive action, end quote. So despite the biggest thing to ever happen in the vein of abortion rights since basically Roe, there's no grounding in fact predictions for mass violence. And yet these organizations are sending out warnings. And here's where I thought he really hit the nail on the head. He said, when you remove the machismo out of extremism, you remove a lot of extremism out of extremism.
1: Yeah. I mean, we can't pretend groups like Jane's Revenge, which is sort of the big scary one for a lot of people on the right, that they're totally harmless. They've started these fires in these pregnancy centers and, you know, they have left these threats on churches and... Threats aren't great and we can't pretend like that's all fine. But no one's been hurt, at least to my knowledge. And it's nowhere near the kind of organized political violence we saw in the past with the anti-abortion attacks and that we continue to see with groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, things where we have angry men with guns and who think their rights are being taken away, but they haven't really lost anything.
0: We're going to take a break here, but if you want to hear more from Molly and myself on another topic, check out our Slate Plus segment, Is This Feminist?, where today we're debating whether the Little Miss and Mr. Memes that you've been seeing everywhere are feminist. Welcome back to the waves. I have a very vivid memory of what I consider to be the moment the Catholics lost me. I was in high school, and while I can't remember what grade I was in, I remember the teacher who I will not name. I mean, not that he listens to this show, but just in case. Uh, It was a religion class. I went to a Catholic high school, and we had mandatory church services and religion classes. And I had just started taking birth control for menstrual issues. And this male teacher starts to say that birth control is wrong. And if you absolutely must take it, then you need to go to your priest and ask for permission. And I had a friend sitting next to me who was not Catholic, who basically looked at me and went, huh? <laughs> and I turned to her and I said, kind of loudly, basically, if you want to get medication for your body, you need a priest's permission. And I said it, you know, in that very sort of high school shitty way, because I was really upset about what I was hearing from my teacher. It seemed so crazy to me that I needed permission to take a medication that my doctor prescribed so that I wasn't in blistering pain once a month. And I got in trouble, which was very out of character for me. But that moment stuck with me. And I started to see kind of for the first time, this control over women's bodies that the Catholic Church wants to have. Because he wasn't saying you flat out cannot, with all caps, use birth control. He was saying you need permission from a priest, which means you need permission from a man because women can't be priests. And anecdotally, I know several pro-choice Catholics, but I just don't see their views Portrayed by the leadership at all.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is the thing about a church like, or an institution like the Catholic Church that is essentially um, an absolute monarchy. You have this huge gap between the leadership and the actual congregations, the people that make up the church. Um, And it is very top down, um, despite the fact that this current Pope is sort of trying to change that a little bit. But there are these formal positions on things. And that is what the world sees, is the top-down declarations. But the reality is that, that Catholics are not even close to being politically unified as a population. Polling has shown that a majority of American Catholics actually opposed Overturning Roe, that this is not a driving issue for them. That faith in general is not that much of a political driver for Catholics um, as it is for some other Christians. And a lot of people complain that pro-choice Catholics, like the ones you know, are they call them cafeteria Catholics. But the but the reality is, Catholics and American Catholics especially have always, to some degree picked and chosen, what parts of the church's teachings to fully buy into. Um, That's just part of the tradition. So this applies for conservatives and liberals. But the bishops in the U.S., they can't condone that, obviously. They are trying to look, despite the fact that it's actually a very fractured group that fights a lot, They want to look unified, and they want to look like this is one sort of solid institution. And the U.S. bishops are also very socially conservative, much more so than the bishops in the rest of the world. So they really love to look as if they are coming out strong on these culture war issues, which they love. So even when the pope is pretty much you know, sort of begging them to stop making everything about abortion, they can't resist making it out to be the absolute top issue for american catholics and so what you end up getting is this population that overall just doesn't care that much but then this tiny number of old unmarried men who are never going to have children at least um per the rules, plus a small handful of these wealthy, influential men working in these elite Catholic institutions who are claiming with their authority that they speak on behalf of some 60 to 70 million people. It is uh, quite a mismatch.
0: And this is different from evangelicals, right? Especially white evangelicals. Uh, Evangelicals are a Christian subgroup that is kind of hard to pin down, but they're essentially a Protestant offshoot that holds much more rigid conservative beliefs across the board than other groups. And they're the group where the actual individuals really firmly believe these things. And when we were talking about this as we were preparing, you said there's a huge difference with how white evangelicals treat abortion than Catholics, but the issue has always been predominantly seen as a Catholic one.
1: Yeah, that's because abortion is historically the Catholic issue. The Catholic Church really launched the whole pro-life movement. Um, and for about a decade, they were the only ones who really cared about it, much in the way that they currently are the ones who really care about ending the death penalty, and no one else really cares about that. Um, but then white Protestants took it on at this as this culture war issue. And so Catholics are still... In some ways the public face of the pro-life movement, Um, but white evangelicals are really the ones who are carrying the spirit of it and the politics of it. Um, Because unlike Catholics, white evangelicals are really politically unified. They are in lockstep when it comes to opposing abortion. So in terms of white evangelicals, it's much closer to being a true organic movement with popular support. Whereas with Catholics, you're looking at these priests and bishops telling people these black and white rules about sexuality and then pretending they don't know that a huge percentage of Catholics will simply ignore what they're saying. Um, So this means that Catholics have to be much more careful and top down in the way they handle their messaging about it. But it seems they've gotten pretty savvy about it. And getting to cite this historical bigotry in their defense has been a really powerful tool for these strategies.
0: I became Jewish for a lot of reasons. The faith just really feels right to me and how I view the world. And a part of that is because I consider Judaism, you know, the non Orthodox, the Reform Judaism to be feminist. And so Molly, I'm curious, can you be feminist and be a Catholic?
1: I mean, I do think there are untold numbers of Catholics out there who would happily identify as feminists. There are going to be those who think that being anti-abortion fits in with their conception of what feminism is, and that's one camp. But then you have others, the maligned cafeteria Catholics, like I said, who will just happily just decide that this is not antithetical to their faith. The reality with a really old religion, which is what we're talking about here with the Catholic Church, is while there are these official stances, not everything – there's just so much there that you can actually pull from. Um, the modern ideas about that the Catholic Church has about abortion, they're old, but they're not back to the beginning old. The Catholic Church adopted this somewhere along the way, but there was a period beforehand when no one – ever cared about it. So there's just an ability to say, you know, I think maybe they're not quite right on this one. And is that allowed in the current Catholic Church? I mean, that's debatable, but that's also, like I said, the tradition there. Lots of people will just figure out what they choose to believe and what they don't, and that is being a modern Catholic.
0: Before we head out, we want to give some recommendations. Molly, what are you loving right now?
1: Okay, so this is from last year, but it's a book that I think maybe a lot of people wouldn't have heard of and that I just finished. It's called uh, Build Your House Around My Body. I would describe it like magical realism, maybe you might say sort of horror fantasy, but it weaves together very, Vietnamese history and Vietnamese folklore um, in dealing with concepts about trauma, which sounds heavy, but I just found the way that it pulled together these different storylines to be very fun and I couldn't put it down.
0: I absolutely love that idea and I will be adding that to my list. My to be read pile is incredibly large, but I think this is definitely worth adding. My recommendation is a television series for kids called Stillwater. It's actually based on a series of books by John Muth called, well, the first one's called Zen Shorts. Then there's also Zen Ties and Zen Socks. In any case... The books and the show follow three kids, three siblings, um, Carl, Michael, and Addy. And they live next door to a panda, a large panda named Stillwater. And whenever any of them is having some troubles or difficulty dealing with something, they go and they talk to Stillwater. And he usually has a story for them that has some sort of a lesson to be learned that pertains to whatever is ailing them at the moment. It's an incredibly sweet book series, but it is also just a wonderful television show. My daughter is two and we don't let her watch a ton of TV, but we have all really fallen in love with the Stillwater series. It's incredibly sweet. Uh, One of the best episodes I thought was when Addie was feeling just kind of sad. She didn't really have a reason. She was just feeling a little bit blue. And one of her brothers wanted to make her feel better, but didn't understand what was going on. And, And Stillwater you know, told them a story about how, you know, you can help make somebody feel better just by sitting with them and just by being with them. And I thought that was just a wonderful lesson to teach kids. One, that it's okay to just feel sad and to just not really know why, but to just feel a little bit blue. And two, how to help somebody who's feeling that way, that it's okay to just sit down with them and to just be with them. And sometimes that's all somebody needs. So Stillwater and the Zen Shorts book series, I highly recommend. That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by myself, Shana Roth.
1: Shannon Paulus is our editorial director. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio.
0: We would absolutely love to hear from you. Please email us at thewaves at slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topic, same
1: time and place.
0: Thank you so much for being a Slate Plus member. And since you're a member, you get this weekly segment, Is This Feminist? Every week we debate whether something is feminist. And this week we are talking about the Little Miss slash Mr. Men meme. These are taken from drawings from the children's book series by British author and illustrator Roger Hargreaves. So these little round figures, and people on the internet have recently adapted them to say things that fit their own personalities. For example, mine today would be, Little Miss has too many tabs open. Molly, what would your Little Miss be?
1: I think mine would probably be, Little Miss wakes up 10 minutes before I have to be at work. (laughs)
0: So these are something that have come up and sort of spread and gone viral over the last couple weeks. And we want to talk today about whether or not these Little Miss Mr. Men memes are feminist. So, Molly, what is your initial thought about them?
1: My initial thought is that they are a pretty fun way of expressing. I guess what I have to say is there's a really intense impulse on social media to sort of take very seriously ideas about mental health, which I think, you know, is a mix of healthy and sometimes a little unhealthy if you're not talking to an actual doctor and you're diagnosing yourself with something. Um, But so many of these are a way of talking about some of our quirks and maybe some of the charmingly less healthy things that we do in a way that – is fun and not always so serious. And I feel like there's something pretty refreshing about it in a way that is a fun way of expressing these things without any sort of shame, Um, which, you know, given that it is a little misdoing it uh, sort of proudly, I could say I'm currently leaning more feminist than not.
0: I think so too. I think that it's it's interesting how one how this has taken off and I like how it's sort of one of the reasons for it is that it gives people a way to sort of express themselves on serious topics without it being too serious. On the other hand, the thing that kind of makes me maybe go the other way is that these are so juvenile. I mean, these characters are, you know, sort of very rudimentarily drawn. They're bright colors. Uh, A lot of the girl ones have pigtails or flowers in their hair. Actually, most of the (laughs) girl ones have pigtails. It feels to me like it might be a little bit too juvenile, almost like in order for women to express themselves, it has to be in this sort of childlike way. Like we want to, to be serious about something, but we can't be too serious because then we won't be taken seriously. I think I said serious too many times in that sentence.
1: <laughs> I definitely see what you're saying. It is, there is that impulse that, we, that I think a lot of women have when they have a serious complaint to sort of downplay it and joke about it. And that's not, of course, what all of these are. So many of these things are just like fun quirks, like about loving coffee too much or something. Um, But the ones that are, you know, little miss SSRI or whatever it is, um, those seem to be sort of ways of uh, taking something serious and making it palatable um, for everyone else, which I can definitely see that being a gut impulse that a lot of us have that is less than ideal. One of them that
0: really defines me is Little Miss Camp Parallel Park. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, Let's talk a little bit about sort of how these memes went viral. Uh, So in an article from Polygon by Anna Diaz titled Why Little Miss Characters Are Everywhere, she talks about how this initially was a British children's character that we talked about earlier from the 1970s. And it's kind of unclear exactly when these started being memes. It looks like it was initially posted in... Uh, the Little Miss Meme format in June of 2021 on Tumblr, but maybe not. It looks like as far as the current iteration, it was in June of 2022. And I'm kind of curious why you think that it's such an old character, I and mean, one that I had never seen or heard about, why do you think this went went so viral? Yeah, I'm
1: assuming, I don't know, but I'm assuming this was not a British person or not a group of british people that kicked this back off was this some am- americans we
0: think it was an instagram user named jewel puppy j u u l p u p p y uh that individual has not come forward i think as far as i from the research i've done it's only they've only been known as jewel puppy okay well i
1: mean i'd heard of this the these books specifically from british friends who talked about it being something that was sort of ubiquitous in their British childhood, but I'd never otherwise encountered them. Um, I I gotta think it's happening now. Well, okay, this is pure speculation. But I feel like we go through cycles um, as a internet culture where we really love to find ways to sort of self-categorize in the Enneagram, Myers-Briggs kind of way. Um, But I also feel with the point we're in right now uh, with social media with um, you know a lot of the the world feeling pretty toxic and people also wanting just a little bit of a fun break from it given that it is summer and we all need a little bit of a distraction kind of feels like there's this cyclical nature to it but we would naturally be on a more fun upswing of it um, I don't think that really answers the question of why this cartoon other than to say maybe it's necessarily nostalgic i mean people love stranger things right they love the 80s maybe i mean people always love making jokes about childhood things so maybe this is just people who were fond of these cartoons when they were young but again that's pure speculation on my part i really don't know
0: there is something summery about these characters, you know, the bright colors that a lot of them are wearing fun hats. They do have some sort of like lighthearted summer kind of feel to them, in my opinion. I don't know. I feel like they kind of go well with summer. But back to the question of, you know, are these feminist or not? So we've kind of come somewhere in the middle that it's good to be expressive, but at the same time, there's this sort of like juvenile, can't take it too seriously aspect to it. How would you change these to be maybe a little bit more feminist?
1: Hmm. So there are Mr. versions of this meme. I'll go ahead and cop to the fact that I don't encounter these very much um, naturally with my own social media consumption because I'm More of a TikTok gal. But um, I will say that I am assuming that part of the reason the mister versions aren't as uh, ubiquitous is because it's just not as fun to say mister as it is little miss. So maybe if we could find uh, a more fun way that would make the mister part a little bit more... uh, Common, or at least, you know, a gender neutral version. I mean, it's pretty fun to say Little Miss. Um, So maybe there is like a cute and version we could do for all genders that uh, might even the playing field a little bit.
0: I agree. I think it would be nice if these weren't so binary, the Little Miss or Mister. I have seen a couple where it's MX and then insert your your red flag or phobia or whatever people call that the additional part of it. But yeah, I think it might be more feminist if we find a way to make these more common in a less binary way. Is there something you're dying to know if it's feminist or not? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves at slate.com.